Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, Emerging Perspectives on People, Process, and Profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood. Hi, Olivia here. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, where each week we explore new perspectives on the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world, with a special emphasis on what I feel is our most valuable asset, our human capital. Today, I'm very excited to have as my guest, fellow talk show host on Voice America, Rebecca Costa. Rebecca is a sociobiologist who offers a genetic explanation for current events, emerging trends, and individual behavior. And she's a fellow geek. After a highly successful career in Silicon Valley as CEO of her own company, she spent six years researching and writing The Watchman's Rattle, a radical new theory of collapse. And the success of her book led to her own weekly radio program called The Costa Report, which is nationally syndicated by Business Talk Network Radio and, as I mentioned, Voice America. Rebecca, welcome to Quantum Business Insights. Well, thank you for having me today. My pleasure. So when I read your book, I immediately knew I wanted to share your discoveries and insights with my audience because I'm seeing with advances in technology and globalization, businesses are struggling to keep up with increasing complexity and they see innovation as a critical long-term success factor in their business. And in your book, The Watchman's Rattle, you take the same lens to our entire species. You explain how we appear to have lost our ability to solve problems and this is because this accelerating complexity is actually outpacing our brain's ability to evolve and that our survival as a species depends on our brains to be working in a very unique way. First, can you explain the title, The Watchman's Rattle? And then I'd love you to just let us know what led to doing this research and how you put this amazing thesis together. Well, again, thank you for having me on your program. I'm a big fan of your show, so uh, it was exciting to get the invitation. The, the, watch, the title, The Watchman's Rattle, comes from the first police forces that societies had. Uh, they were called watchmen, and they actually didn't carry any weapons or arms with them. They carried a large rattle that in the middle of the night, if they saw wrongdoing as they were protecting neighborhoods or battleships or lighthouses, they would click this large rattle that would make a rat-tat-tat-tat sound in the middle of the night, and then everyone in that area would wake up and immediately come to the aid of the watchman uh, uh, who saw the problem. Uh, and that's how we defended our communities. And, of course, you know, when you come up with a, the new symptoms of collapse, you realize that, <laughs> you know, it's not a one-person operation. What you have to do is mm. push the information out so that everyone can arm themselves and we can come together and uh, thwart danger and threat. When I use the word collapse, it, it seems rather radical, but uh, uh, when I am referring to collapse as a sociobiologist, I'm simply referring to a collapse to simpler systems that we at this point in time, our, our brains have evolved to be able to manage. And I can tell you that a 75,000 page tax code is not anything that any human brain can manage. 
uh, as well as the uh, almost 400,000-word Affordable uh, Care Act, uh, we can see that at every level in business and society, the levels of complexity, the layers and and layers that you have to get through uh, have, have just outpaced our ability to think and act in a rational way. And, you know, even, even the former uh, CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt, is claiming that we're generating as much information over one weekend, 48 hours, as we did from the dawn of humankind to year 2003. That means you go to bed on That's... Friday night and by Monday morning we've created that mass of knowledge. <laughs> and yet and, wow. every executive, every leader of every company has now got to use that, that information, that knowledge, that empirical data to make the best possible decisions. So I argue that we've quickly left the information age where the emphasis was on the production of data and the transmission of data, and we have now moved into what I describe as a technolithic era where data, without data analytics, we fall into the same traps that previous civilizations and previously successful companies and organizations have fallen into. And that is that in the face of greater complexity than we are physiologically designed to manage, there are three early symptoms which occur before a collapse to more primitive systems. Uh, And it doesn't matter Mm. if we're talking about economic systems where suddenly we're talking about fiat money that has really no sense to it whatsoever. Uh, We suddenly revert to bartering. Bartering we understand. We each meet in the road. I have a cow. You have some wheat. We argue until we come to something that we both agree is a great value for ourselves, and we make the exchange. Human beings can understand that kind of transaction. What they don't understand is the kind of thing that got us into the subprime mortgage problem where you've got uh, credit default swaps and things that, right. that even the, the most knowledgeable executives of the largest financial organizations cannot understand. So uh, in a nutshell, we're up against greater complexity. It's exponentiating and getting worse by the picosecond. And if we want to use the most simplest definition of complexity, comes out of Harvard University. And, I, and by the way, any of your listeners today, don't go buy a book on complexity because they're just too <laughs> complex. They'll make your head want to explode. Uh, but the simplest definition of complexity that will allow us to understand why we're so vulnerable right now is that complexity is where there are more wrong solutions then there are right ones, and the number of wrong ones is exponentiating by the picosecond. Therefore, each leader, each individual in society, every worker is now trying to adapt and survive a high failure rate environment where your odds of picking the wrong insurance company, the wrong doctor, the wrong uh, financial investment are far greater than your odds of picking the right one. Well, that's <laughs> overwhelming, I'm sure, especially for people who, um, you know, are just kind of over, overcome by this, this concept. And so, um, in your book, you talk about the fifth leap. Um, what, 
what is that, and can that help us with this? Well, yes. You know, we have solutions. We, unlike other civilizations like the Mayans or the Romans, which I go into my book, you know, I, when I was determining what this pattern was and what the precursors to collapse to simpler systems were, uh, of course, mm-hmm. I was going back throughout history. And then I'm not, a, as you can probably tell, I'm an energetic, happy uh, person. <laughs> People are always yeah. surprised that I'm so cheerful when I write about the symptoms of collapse. When I go <laughs> and speak around the country, they're, they're shaking their head and saying, it doesn't seem like you're the person that would be studying this field of interest. Uh, and that's because for the first time in human history, we have solutions which previous civilizations and, and large organizations did not have at their disposal. So I'll get to that in just a moment, but I, I want to first kind of go walk through what the earliest symptoms are that we're driving toward a cliff. Not the cataclysmic event which historians and economists tend to focus on. We always like that adrenaline rushing event that shoves us finally off the cliff. But I'm more interested mm-hmm. in what are the road signs that we're actually driving toward the cliff because that gives us the opportunity to turn the wheel. Uh, so, you know, right. when your we- front wheels are already hanging off the cliff, it's a little late, folks. You know, we- we've greatly <laughs> diminished our odds of, of averting catastrophe. But-, but if we know we're driving toward a cliff, I think most sensible humans would make an effort to, to uh, you know, avoid that-, that inevitability. So what are those symptoms? Very simply, there are three of them. We see them in the, the, as a preview of the collapse of every great civilization from the Romans to the Mayans, but they've never been discussed prior to my book. So let's talk about what those are. The first is that the society or a large corporation or an organization becomes gridlocked. They become unable to act even though... They know what the calamity is and even when they have solutions to avert a negative outcome. They become unable to act. Now, I get lots and lots, thousands of emails every day from people saying, we've already passed that stage. <laughs> Look at what's happening in Washington, D.C., where we can't get agreement on anything. <laughs> uh, and, and, we, and yet we have solutions. We have solutions to water shortages, food shortages, to uh, making America safer. Uh, you know, name any problem. Employment. You know, there's, there's experts around that have 10,000 solutions as to how to solve those problems. Okay, so then the second symptom is, after gridlock, you see that these societies, they, they suffer from a mass confusion between what is an empirical fact and what is an unproven belief. They can't tell one from the other. I get lots of emails from people saying, we're already in that stage. All you have to do is turn on commercial talk radio, and you'll hear very talented hosts talk for four hours without citing a single fact. And by the way, you and I as talk show hosts, we know that takes tremendous talent. Yes. I mean, let's not diminish the talent it is required to get on the radio every day for three and four hours and and be able to talk about unproven beliefs as though they are are fact, observable fact. Uh, And so the society is really suffering from this, particularly because of the Internet. For every study you can find that says one thing, you can find ten that say the exact opposite. And in that world, we're expected to manage our own finances, pick our own health care. You know, more and more of the problems and the critical decisions are getting shoved down to the consumer when the consumer is facing a high failure rate environment the same way that corporations and businesses are. 
So what happens when we can't discern, understand, or get to empirical fact, which is our case now, because of the rate we're generating information, what happens to us is that we fall back on unproven beliefs and we begin voting on issues based on TV commercials and lawn signs in our neighbor's lawns. Uh, you know, we, we don't base it on any particular research or empirical data. Now let's go to the third stage. The third stage after gridlock and a confusion between proven, proven facts and unproven beliefs is the rational outcome of that, which is that public policy, corporate policy, becomes highly irrational because it is not based on empirical fact any longer. So we go from mm. gridlock to confusion between facts and unproven beliefs to irrational policy. And once those three steps have been followed, which every, the, every collapse that we can name has followed, then some cataclysmic event causes collapse. Those are the, the, the previews to collapse. And once we know what those are, we can safeguard against them. So how do we safeguard against them? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> well, it's the reason it took me so darn long to write this book is because once I had identified the symptoms, I thought, well, what's the point of putting a book out that's doom and gloom? Who wants to right. read that? You know, and, and we're, you know, that, hey, we have these symptoms and we're just going to drive off the cliff anyways. So, you know, then I had to spend the, the last half of my research looking for, well, what do we have today that would cause us not to go the same way as, as failed corporations, as failed organizations? You know, do we have anything at all? And it turns out it took me to an interesting place. One... We do have successful models for high rates of failure, which we didn't have before. And the example that I use is a venture capital model. For those uh, listeners today that are familiar with venture capitalists, you'll know that out of 100 investments they make, they only expect 10 or 15 to do well. And yet I live pretty close up here in California near Sand Hill Road, and venture capitalists are doing very well, <laughs> it, despite overwhelming numbers of failure. But it's not, the, it's not the failures that they care about, because the successes mm -hmm. will easily overwhelm the failures. And, and so what they're doing is they're basically they're, they're, they're playing the odds that the successes will be far bigger than the losses. And they're very good at doing that. Now, what they know, which the rest of us needed to know, is that no amount of due diligence on the front end is going to improve those odds. No matter what mm -hmm. they do, it's probably going to be 10 or 15% that makes all their money and the others are losses. And so it's the way they invest in those companies that provides a model for how to invest in solutions. Instead of sitting in a boardroom or in a meeting in a company and debating about which way to go, what to do, the better, uh, the better approach is to invest in four or five solutions for first round of funding, where you fund those solutions, come back with empirical data, and then give a second round of funding only to those that have proven some level of success. And same thing with the third round of funding. Eventually what happens is your decision-making looks more like a funnel than a column rather than try to do diligence and select the right solution in a high failure rate environment from the get-go, which is 
not likely at all, no matter how much data you have. It is better to approach a problem within a company or a society by launching four or five solutions, and I'll give you a good example of that. Uh, the oil spill that we had in the Gulf, if you remember that how we approached that, we had a mission-critical, time-sensitive problem. What we did was we went in and we said, we're going to drop a concrete box on the top, and that will do it. And then 30 days later, we, just, we were all watching on TV as big mushroom clouds of oil were coming up to the surface, and it was a great ecological disaster. So at 30 days later, we said, all right, we're going to drill on the side and we're going to drain, we're going to capture some of the oil before it gets to the surface. And 30 days later, we discovered that wasn't working. And so a solution number three, which was, you know, two, three months later, was static kill. And that was the one that worked. But let's imagine if we didn't get to static kill for, uh, for eight months or 12 months. You cannot address these mission-critical, time-sensitive uh, uh, problems by, by addressing them in a serial mode because the uh, repercussions of the problem are exponentiating to the point where a solution that should have been uh, executed early will no longer work 30, 60, 90 days down the road because the magnitude of the problem is much larger at that point. So then let's compare that to the rescue of the Chilean miners. At the time you know, where they successfully extracted every single miner for, again, a mission-critical, time-sensitive problem. How did they go about it? Well, they weren't saying, let's try one thing and then another and another. They actually implemented 16 rescue plans in tandem. They didn't worry about the cost of it. They said, we've got 16 potentially viable ways to extract them. Let's go after all of them. In a very short amount of time, literally hours, 16 went to 15, 14, 13, because they, they were proven to be unfeasible. And even when they rescued every single miner uh, from catastrophe, there were still three plans which were completely viable, which were being executed. So, again, a funnel versus a column allows us to address a high failure rate environment in a mission-critical situation, but that requires a completely different mentality by, by individuals. And then there are some also some brain solutions. Well, before we go to that, because this is just so fascinating, but we do need to take a break. Um, and then I want to come back and actually pursue that. Uh, but my guest today is Rebecca Costa, and you can read about her book at www.rebeccacosta.com, and you can buy her book on the site and read more about all of her work and uh, her various shows. So we'll be back in a few minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Our workplace is dynamically changing. How do you stay ahead of the curve with respect to learning and training? Tune in every week to The Future of Workforce Learning and Development with host Pamela Robinson. You'll learn about real-world strategies, solutions, and resources that will showcase these changes and keep you ready for what's next. The Future of Workforce Learning and Development is heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be, or are you feeling drained and unfocused? 
Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kurt Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here, and I'm with Rebecca Costa, author of The Watchman's Rattle, and we're talking about theories of collapse and what signs lead to those collapse, like gridlock, confusion, irrational policies, and then what we can do when we face calamities, rather than going with a, a linear, try this and wait till it works and then try something else, Rebecca was sharing with us how we really need to go after every solution right away, kind of like a venture capitalist would invest in a bunch of solutions and then see kind of how they filter out. So before the break, you were starting to talk about um, another idea. Please continue. Yes, I will talk about that other idea. Just let me add one more thing. I've been consulting with Dole Fresh Foods, which is the largest producer of food in in the uh, world, and, uh, and also IBM Corporation. And it's interesting that this quick change of culture, uh, which we call fail fast, you know, try things, get out of the box, try solutions, fund them for very short amounts of time, and if they do mm. not prove any results, move on to those that do and up your investment on those that are productive. Uh, this is really the new model for succeeding in a high failure rate environment, and it's very interesting that that those words fail fast actually came from the president and CEO in Dole Fresh uh, uh, Fruits and Vegetables. I, I stole it from him at a, a corporate meeting where he got up and he said, all right, everybody, go on out and fail fast. <laughs> and I thought, That's... what corporate leader tells his people to go fail fast? Uh, but the trick that... there, the name of the game is do it fast rather than invest over six months a year to find out that that was the wrong pathway. So let's talk about whatever else we have uh, at our, uh, what other tools. And by the way, I do go through lots of tools that are available to uh, leaders of, from all walks of life. But uh, one of the tools that we have that we've never had before is when you think about it, we can put a, a skull cap on your brain, put you in a lab, and we could administer increasing levels of complex problems to you. And for the first time ever, in the history of mankind, we can see what's going on under your skull. We, we never had this ability before. So we can watch how your, what your brain does. We give you simple problems, and we see that you solve them either in your left side of your brain, uh, which is very logical and rational, and it starts out with X number of solutions and keeps narrowing them down, narrowing them down until it gets one or two, and it picks one. Mm-hmm. Or we see that you use the right side of your brain, which uses a process called synthesis, and that's a... 
I'm talking to you and I notice there's a little bit of perspiration above your lip and I know you're lying to me. I don't know how I know you're lying to me, but I know you're lying to me. I got this feeling. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so uh, we, we have the left and right, and sometimes we use both sides of the brain. But scientists within the last five years have made an incredible discovery about how the human biology is responding to accelerating complexity, and that is a third form of problem-solving has been identified. Now, we don't know a lot about it. In fact, if there's a criticism about my book, which I, I gladly took, people said, well, you, you didn't give me enough about, <laughs> about this third form of problem solving. And I said, well, it's a nonfiction book. I can't just make things up. You know, I can only yeah. tell you what we know to this point in time. Uh, uh, right. but, but it's a valid criticism because we, we know some, but we don't know nearly enough. So let me tell you what it is. It's a process that we call insight. And about 300 milliseconds before people who are sitting in a lab and failing to answer very complex questions, we see about 300 milliseconds before they're going to answer a question way above their pay grade that a small part of the human brain called the ASTG lights up like a Christmas tree. And Hmm. we know they're going to answer the question. And they do. Now, in science, whenever you get to a point where you can predict something with 100% accuracy, you're really on to something. And, and the way that they're defining insight is that it is the sudden and spontaneous connection between two pieces of data that you have that you've never connected before. You've never put mm. them together to solve that problem. Now, this is important to understand because it comes on like a freight train. Immediately when someone has an insight and uses this third form of problem solving, which is ideally suited to highly complex and chaotic problems, what Mm -hmm. happens is is the, the laboratory assistants run in and say, tell us how you came up with that. And the way we know that the left and right brain isn't working is because we, the answer is almost always, I don't know. It just came to me. It's not as though I started out with this and then I said, there's no story attached to it. There's no filtering, nothing. It's just sort of it came out of thin air. And when you go around the country, you find that everybody's had insights. Some people have them when they're driving. Some people when they're out Mm. walking the dog, washing dishes, taking a shower. They they suddenly will solve a problem, and it almost seems to come out of an, uh, an unconscious part of our brain where we take two or three or four pieces of data that we already have, and we construct a solution to a very complicated problem. And here's the lovely thing. The answers are always kind of almost obvious and elegant. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're fabulous. So when you watch this phenomenon in a lab, which I have many, many, many times, I, I will tell you that the first thing you, you start thinking is, how do I induce more insights? How do I get more of them? I want to use <laughs> that part. And, and that's the part we don't know right now. Now, here's well, can I just ask you something about that? Because I remember hearing, I mean, I've had that experience where I'm struggling with something and then I'll be in the shower or I'll take a nap and then I'll wake up and it'll be there, the answer. Damn, right there. But I, rem- I remember hearing Thomas Edison used to intentionally take a nap holding a spoon or, or a plate of bearings. I, I've heard different stories. but And the reason was because he knew if he fell asleep, he would have these insights. And as soon as he was in a deep enough sleep, he would drop whatever he was holding and it would wake him up and he'd have a new idea to 
to create a light bulb. Um, yeah. So that sounds like he had a clue of how to create these insights. That, that's right. We, we've made folklore and, leg- and, and legend out of insights, uh, which is what we do when we don't understand the scientific process. Archimedes sitting in a, in a bathtub and the water flowing over and he discovers displacement theory. Uh, Newton sitting under a tree and an apple falls on his head and, he, he, and boink, you know, suddenly he comes up with gravitational theory. Uh, we, we've made stories out of this, but, but in fact, it turns out now that we can look and see what the brain is doing, no, it's actually a biological function. And here is the wonderful news. We all have it. Now, mm-hmm. if you've never taken a physics class, you're not going to come up with gravitational theory. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to invent information you don't have. Remember, the key here is you're connecting information that you have. So if we reverse engineer this, then the real trick to insights is loading content because there is an undeniable relationship to the content the brain has and our ability to come up with insights and solutions to complex problems. So now, now we take a step back and we say, all right, if we want to induce more insights, right, how do we load more content? Now, not, not an easy problem. Look at our education system right now. We don't understand a lot about how the brain learns. Now, people are probably shocked about that. We don't know how the brain learns. No, we don't, because if we did, we'd have better public education. So we're only, and and by the way, I want to tell you how important this discovery really is. Last Mm. year, for the first time in U.S. history, we funded mapping the human brain. The Obama administration set aside funding and an entire program to map the human brain in the same way that we mapped the human genome. And look what that did for medical science. We are on the cusp of understanding how the brain can meet the challenges of complex problems, and insight is going to play a really big role in that because it's undeniable that there is a third form of problem solving, and the trick to unlocking it is loading content. Now, we're on to loading content because there are neuroscientists, and I'm not talking about gaming companies, but actual neuroscientists like Mike Mersnick who runs Posit Science out of San Francisco, where we've discovered that before you load content or have to tackle a very difficult problem, the brain wants to be warmed up. Mm. It wants to be warmed up prior to learning and absorbing content. And so when you warm up all the different sections of the brain, which it's very easy to create games that, that warm up memory, spatial uh, distances, you know, things like that, but... Mm-hmm. If you look at these, these uh, neuroscientific games, you'll see that they've put them in schools like in Jacksonville County, for example. They've given neuroscientific video games that warm up a child's brain for 10 to 15 minutes before the start of school. And those children now have been tracked. I'm going to say about 25,000 children were a subject to this. No change in teachers, no change in curriculum, classrooms, computing, nothing. Only warming up a child's brain before the start of school, and those children now have three times the academic achievement of kids whose brains were not warmed up prior to the start of school. This so is important data. We know why now isn't this? that the brain has to be warmed up. And if you think about it, you wouldn't go run a marathon without stretching and 
hydrating and working out and preparing for it. The brain is being taxed. We've hit our limit. And when you hit the limit, the brain's got to be worked out, just the same way that your body has got to be worked out. Well, do you think there's any connection, too, with this, just the amount of social networking that kids do, you know, in contrast to what we did when we were that age that's changing the way the brain works? Well, there's no question. We can see that the brain is now adapting to, com- you know, to com- different forms of communication like texting and, and email. Uh, we, you know, there, there's a, been a recent study, it's a very recent study of, of uh, uh, drivers that drive the black cabs in uh, London. And uh, people can Google the study. It's rather fascinating because uh, there are something like 85,000 landmarks in London or something. This is a massive number, uh, one-way streets and all of this. And it's the most complex area to drive ever in the world. And so uh, in order to become a driver for a black cab, you have to take a, a grueling exam, which the vast majority, something like 80 or 90 percent, fail repeatedly, and the, the, the exam is called the knowledge exam. And it's very, very interesting that those who pass the knowledge exam and become cab drivers have been observed before they, they took the knowledge exam, and then 20, 10, 20 years later, we've now observed that a certain part of their brain is larger than those who failed the knowledge exam and did not go on to become London cab drivers. Now, never in human history have we seen the brain adapt in one generation. Wow. Never. And so this study is getting a lot of recognition right now. And it's unfortunately for the people who did the study, it's being vetted unfairly. <laughs> mm. <laughs> because evolutionary biologists are used to the fact that the frontal cortex took about 3 million years to develop. So the ludicrousy yeah. of saying, well, but we're seeing adaptation in one generation, in one individual, uh, you know, makes us a little nutty. Uh, but uh, it, the study is holding up. It's holding up. So, yes, the brain is trying to adapt. But mm-hmm. we have to remember that it takes normally fast evolution, even fat, what we call fast evolution, is two and three million years. You know, and, and so, you know, right. you, you know this because you're driving in your car and you want to text and drink your coffee and work your <laughs> nav system and you don't have enough appendages today to actually do the things you need to do in your car. And, they're, and by the way, they're not coming for hundreds of millions of years. So, so we, we, we have some tools. We're learning more mm-hmm. every single day. Uh, this is so uh, important that the government now is funding mapping the human brain, and this will have such an impact on how we train people, how we adapt to a fast-changing, high-failure-rate environment, how we lead. It will have a phenomenal uh, um, impact on, on future generations to come and how businesses stay uh, current. Well, are there types of businesses that are kind of resistant to this? Because I know my experience in business, there were a lot of companies that were very adverse to risk. I mean, are they kind of seeing the the reality here and maybe starting to change? It sounds like IBM is, but are other companies or what's going on there? 
Well, it's a good question. When my book first came out, uh, I would say that people were reading it, thinking about it, and, you know, I, I would say the first year I did a lot of media uh, um, interviews, but I didn't see that corporations needed me to come in and talk a little bit about high failure rate environments and how to adapt to them. Uh, but then Dole took the first move because there's been no greater change in terms of complexity than agriculture, where you used to put a seed in the ground, water it, harvest it, and that was and get it to the store. But now uh, agriculture looks like pharma institutions. You walk in and there's, they're into microbiology and there's laboratories everywhere and they look like pharmaceutical companies. Uh, so they've gone through a massive transition in the course of, maybe one or two decades. And, yeah. and so the, the farmer out in the field needs the benefit of, of NASA meteorological data, and he needs it on his mobile phone. So when you <laughs> really think about the massive transition agriculture has gone through, it's not that surprising that they would be first to say, if there's some way that we ought to be addressing high failure rate environments, uh, you know, then you know, tell us. And it was interesting that my first comment to them is, you're not really in agriculture anymore. You're in the emergency room business. Because when you cut a, fe- a, a, a head of lettuce out in the field, you have a patient that's dying. And now, how quickly can you get it to the grocery store to be consumed before it's dead? That will determine that's... your profitability. And they, they shook their heads and said, we never thought we were in the emergency room business. And I said, well, what we've got to do is look at how emergency rooms, what their procedures are and how they reduce what effectively is going to be a high rate of fatality or failure. And, and, and so, you know, they, they've gone through a massive cultural change within Dole. And interestingly enough now, I probably speak 20 or 30 times a year now to major corporations and major institutions. National Retail Federation, which were... The, the uh, chief information officers of, of uh, Neiman Marcus, Target, Walmart, all the major retailers, the government, I'm back and forth to Washington, D.C., every department, commerce, forestry, uh, the State Department, is interested in, in adapt, adapting to high failure rates and uh, environments. Financial conferences, the largest health care conference. I just came back from the G20 summit. So... Mm. It, we're, all, we're all going through this transition at the same time. And, and, and you can tell from how I'm speaking to you and your audience today, there's no shame in this. Mm-hmm. We are all transitioning. We're moving from data production and transmission to analytics and making that data productive so that we can make better decisions and we can adapt to a high failure rate environment that is too complex for, uh, for our brains to physiologically be able to manage. So we have to depend on better models, and we have to depend on technologies like big data systems and, uh, and other kinds of analytic algorithms, along with portable, transportable, you know, uh, mobile technologies. So there, there, you know, this is a, there are ways to manage the transition. I can't say whether we'll do it well, but I am very <laughs> optimistic at how I see the largest institutions inside our, our society adapting very quickly to these ideas. Well, we're just up in a break, and you're right. That's what gives me hope is that all these 
institutions are asking for this information and, and I think seeing it as something that they urgently need to embrace is this high failure rate. So we are up on a break. Um, my guest today is Rebecca Costa, author of The Watchman's Rattle, and you're listening to Quantum Business Insights. I'm Olivia Parrood, and we'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for The Second Stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, welcome back. This is Olivia, and I'm with Rebecca Costa, author of The Watchman's Rattle. And before the break, we were talking about how companies have to really be in a high failure rate environment and embrace lots of failure to really get to those successful solutions, but that there are now some tools and models. So we talked about some business models and some brain models. And I understand there's also technology that is coming in to really help us with this. Can you expand on that? That's right. We have three categories of solutions that other organizations and civilizations over time didn't have. We have these business models like the venture capital model where you're you're succeeding despite massive numbers of failures. We have brain science where we can see how the brain actually addresses complex problems and how it's adapting to it and what we can do to help the brain, aid the brain to load content. And then lastly, we have technological solutions that we didn't have before. And, you know, I I don't go into this much in the Watchman's Rattle, but in my second book that's coming out, The Verge, I talk a great deal about this. And I talk about the IBM Watson system for, as an example. Um, if we know that we're generating as much data as we did from uh, the dawn of humankind to 2003 every two days, uh, we're just no match for that. And so at some point, what organizations have a tendency to do is they respond to that by saying, well, let's cut the data down. Wrong, mm-hmm. wrong, wrong. <laughs> In a high failure rate environment, the worst thing you could do is say, let's, let's get rid of a lot of data. 
You want all that data. But, but what you need on the back end is some way to connect the relevant data so that you don't have to pay attention to the irrelevant data, which is you know, going to be the vast majority of the information. So any attempt to return to a simpler, uh, uh, manageable set of data is, is disastrous in terms of adaptation. So instead, what, you know, what I, I encourage people to look at is these uh, artificial intelligence systems, which they're calling big data systems. Your, your IT department is your best friend here. Uh, if they can narrow down the data set that actually is relevant to your decision and within picoseconds, then, in fact, what you've done is you've moved toward computer-assisted decision-making, and that is where society is going. So I'm going to give you a specific example of why this is important to organizations and how it works, and that is in emergency rooms. I talked about emergency rooms earlier. There's an example of mission-critical, high-failure-rate environments where the, the failure is really truly life and death, as opposed to some of us who think our decisions in business are. This, this is a case where it really is. So we, with, uh, IBM's put in these Watson systems inside a number of uh, Sloan Ketterling and, and also a number of hospitals. And what it does is it allows the person who takes in the, the patient who is potentially dying to have the same ability to make a decision, a quality decision, as the highest uh, educated, most experienced surgeon or doctor in the entire hospital. And this is how it does it. The patient comes in, the individual inputs immediately, on whether it's a mobile phone or the actual system, puts in everything known about the patient, and Watson searches the entire universe of no mm. medical data in the world and comes back within seconds and says, it's 87% the patient has this, 29% it has this, 14% it has this, this is what you should do. And here's the important part. It comes back and it says, however, if you were to get this data and this data, my diagnosis would improve 73%. So it provides a pointer to the person in terms of what data is needed more importantly than other data. And so we, it, it provides an action, a roadmap for what is the next piece of information I need to get from the patient to save their life. Now, this is a revolution that's taking place in emergency rooms because it means that when you're rushed into an emergency room, it really doesn't matter who you see. They will have at their fingertips the ability to access the entire universe of human medical knowledge and bring that to bear on saving your life. And so can I just ask, does that include personal information on that person, perhaps, that is out there in some kind of medical system as well Absolutely. as just general? If, if there's electronic mm-hmm. medical files which have been mandated by law, those will come up those will be married to what's known about the possible disease or injury that you have. Those analytics wow. exist today. That's and amazing. And the ability to analyze that and give you a choice of decisions and then point you to the next action, which will improve the probability of success. We have that technology today. 
Is it being implemented? Absolutely. Or you said it's throughout hospitals. Throughout hospitals. I just came back from a, uh, a business intelligence and big data conference in Detroit, Michigan. I'm, I'm off to speak to uh, the, as the keynote at the junior leagues, which will be implementing big data systems to be able to solve social problems on the ground in remote communities. I mean, when you think about uh-huh. it, these big data systems if they're tied to a mobile phone application, would allow a farmer out in a remote field in Colombia to say, the humidity has changed 1%, right? Here's a picture mm. of my berry plants. What should I be doing? And for Watson to come back and say, start a quarter of a percent uh, calcium drip, or your berries will be too soft and they'll be damaged on the way to market. So for people who fear big data as being taking away all their privacy, this just seems like such a positive use for it to really create Absolutely. these global decisions. There, there's no question. We can't handle the data that we have without back-end analytics. And then we have to simplify the decisions, right? And, and this is what computer-assisted decision-making is. You can't mm-hmm. have computer-assisted decision-making unless you have analytics and, and artificial intelligence, scanning the universe of available data and bringing back to you only those pieces that are relevant so that they become actionable. Mm-hmm. Because data that is not tied to action is worthless. It's worthless. Right. So, so we, are, we are now facing, every leader is now facing that quandary. The information may be there, but if we want to avoid the symptoms that we were talking about earlier, gridlock, mm-hmm. a confusion over facts and unproven beliefs, right? And, right. and policy and decision-making based on unproven beliefs, we want to avoid that. And we know we're <laughs> up against a high-failure rate environment where more data is being produced than is actionable or can be factored into any decision. Then we have to rely on technologies to filter and attach those pieces of critical information, and then to offer up decisions and pointers as to what we should be going and looking for next. And that's what big data systems are. So I talk a great deal about that. Now, people are sitting there saying, I'm so overwhelmed with information. Guess what? The information that that we're having trouble navigating today is nothing compared to what's coming in 12 and 24 months. If we're worried about big data now, ginormous data is coming. We're facing 3D printing. We're facing facial recognition software. Uh, Let me talk about facial recognition software for a moment. That's a camera in a hospital being, you know, facing your face while you're laying Mm -hmm. in bed, and we express all of our pain and pleasure through our face. And so Mm. this camera is designed to watch your face while you're a patient, and when you show any signs of pain, it alerts a nurse's station to come and administer painkiller before you need it. Now that means watching every aspect of your face 24 hours a day. Think that might be a little bit of data? (laughs) Yeah, and then this all just feeds into models and puts out suggestions, I guess. You would say, you know, like 95% chance they're in pain or... Right, um, and, and we, anybody who's been in the hospital knows you ring the buzzer 18,000 times, you think you're going to just crawl <laughs> right out of your skin. No need for that. 
No need for that because facial recognition software has become so sophisticated, we know when you're in pain. In fact, facial recognition software will be used to identify potential terrorists that are coming into the country. It'll be Mm. used by HR departments to interview people remotely because we'll be able to tell when you're exaggerating or lying about things on your resume. It'll be used by consumer organizations who are already adopting it, by the way, because as you know, your mobile phone can, you know, is watching you. When you take your eye off your mobile phone, many of them power down. But now as you're perusing a catalog on your mobile phone and they're offering you discounts, 10% on that item that you stopped on for 10 seconds, and then you kind of look annoyed, then they, then they mm. go to come back with a 25% discount or a 50% discount. <laughs> Right? So, so all of their responses as a, as a retailer are going to be based on facial recognition software. When do you look happy with the retailer and when do you look annoyed or you don't have any reaction at all? And they will step up so, their game and customize according to what your face reveals. So now imagine wow. everybody, sports analysts, everyone using facial recognition software. If we think we have trouble with the data that's being analyzed today... All you got to do is throw one new technology in, like facial recognition software, and it increases the data by a thousandfold. Oh my gosh! And so we only have about two minutes. Technology, I'd say, the high failure rate environment gets higher, uh, right? And if you don't use models for high failure rate environment, if you're not a company that's adopting that, if you're if you are not uh, using brain science within your HR departments to arm your staff and your leaders. If you are not using uh, big data analytics right now, then you're already behind the eight ball in terms of adaptation. Boy, so it it really doesn't behoove a company to ignore this. They've got to embrace it to really survive, it sounds like you're saying. They have to. There's no other way. What what is the alternative? The alternative is you're dead and you don't know it. (laughs) <laughs> well, and we just have uh, about a minute and a half, but I, I can't help but think I would love for my congressman to have facial recognition, <laughs> of you know, because the government seems like the most gridlock place, and um, that's a whole other conversation, but it's just, it's, I'm sure, overwhelming and scary for some people, but in another way, it's exciting because it sounds like it does give us the tools we need to really manage this uh, and and avoid collapse. Um, do you have any just final thoughts for my audience before we go? Well, no, I, I would say to you that normally when I, we have an co- in-depth conversation like this, and I thank you for making the time available to really get into this because this isn't a, a topic that lends itself to a two-minute interview. Uh, and and yeah. but, but I would say that normally when we have a conversation like this, it solicits a lot more questions and answers. So people can mm-hmm. always go to my website at RebeccaCosta.com. They can watch the videos. The book really is a very short book for such a deep topic, uh, about 250 pages, and you can get through it in a night or two. So I'd really encourage people, if they're interested in this subject and they feel that they're somehow struggling with adapting to a fast pace of change, that I hope that that will be helpful to them. Yes, and I would add that the book is not difficult to understand either. You make it really easy to follow, um, and and it's it it's very it's a lot of common sense and great stories and examples. 
So thank you again for being my guest today. I hope you'll come back when your next book comes out. Absolutely, and thank you again for making time. My pleasure. So next week, my guest will be Amy Robinson, and we'll be discussing gender intelligence and men and women working together. Amy is an executive leadership coach who supports high-performing clients to think about their most challenging work and life situations in healthy, holistic, and an empowered context and provides a toolbox of behaviors for those clients. So you won't want to miss this for a full description and access to past shows please visit www.quantumbusinessinsights.com. I'm your host, Olivia Parrud, saying thank you for tuning into Quantum Business Insights. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parr Rood, again next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week.